Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hello, queers and nice heteros who are here to study up. While you're listening, you can put faces to the names and see all the locations, including a helpful little map of Greenwich Village and the interior of the Stonewall Inn, over on my Instagram, at Queer Serial. And if you're a desktop kind of gal, you can go to Instagram.com slash Queer Serial. That works, too. This is part two of the Stonewall Rebellion, and a special series finale episode is coming soon. When it's all over, check out my Patreon. That'll be the place to find special Season 3 bonus episodes, also interviews with real activists and voice actors, and fun research dives, and a little behind-the-scenes of an upcoming sequel project to this podcast. All that's at patreon.com slash queerserial. And there's a link in the episode notes. Finally, you probably already know, this podcast uses text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show has identifying terms that may now be out of date. And this episode has quite a few of them. For one afternoon this fall, a baseball team brought this town together like it's never been brought together before. At 317 on a cool afternoon, a bunch of kids named Kuzman and Agee and Weiss brought about the impossible dream. And all of a sudden, New Yorkers forgot all about their differences. And it showed me how close this city really can be. For the fact of the matter is that the Bay Ridge homeowner and the Forest Hills school teacher and the jobless teenager in Bedford-Stuyvesant are not natural enemies. 
And there are people trying to divide this city, and we can't let them do that. The man in this office who occupies this chair has to reach all of the people in this city and bring them together. And if anyone tries to tell you that it can't be done, remember the Mets. If they can do it, we can do it. Make your choice on merit only. Support John Lindsay for man. The Greenwich streets are swept, while the New York Post reports, Village raid stirs melee. A police raid on the Stonewall Inn, a tavern frequented by homosexuals at 53 Christopher Street, just east of Sheridan Square in Greenwich Village, triggered a near riot early today. The Stonewall Inn's smashed windows are boarded up again and painted black. As persons seized in the raid were driven away by police, hundreds of passers-by shouting gay power and we want freedom laid siege to the tavern with an improvised battering ram, garbage cans, bottles, and beer cans in a protest demonstration. Police said that the raid was staged because of unlicensed sale of liquor on the premises. But of course, as gay reporters like Craig Rodwell and Dick Leish know, Police were pursuing so much more illegal activity going on in the Dumpy Mafia bar. As the smoke clears, word spreads. But it's not whispered in the parks while cruising or over a warm beer in a boarded up bar. It's shouted in the streets and printed in every gay publication immediately. Everyone is answering the call. Gay and trans people from all over the city come to Christopher Park to see the stone wall for themselves. The bar's employees have written on the boarded-up windows. Support gay power. Come on in, girls. Inspector Smythe loses our money, jukebox, cigarette machine, telephone, safe, cash register, and the boys' tips. There is all college boys and girls in here. Now with no liquor license, they're only serving soft drinks inside the bar, which they're giving away free as long as you can pay the cover charge at the door. Queers from the neighborhood add their own messages to the boards on the bar's windows. They want us to fight for our country? They invaded our rights! Gay prohibition corrupts, cops, feeds, mafia. All the S's are dollar signs. How can Specta Smythe drive a $15,000 car on his salary? Legalize gay bars and lick the problem. Small groups of people are gathered on the sidewalks all Saturday evening, looking at the two copies of the daily news coverage taped up on the boarded windows. Police have been keeping an eye on the end to explore the possibility of local syndicate involvements. Cops walk a beat through Greenwich, telling people to keep moving, but their intimidation doesn't work. By midnight, thousands of queers are in the neighborhood, coming to be a part of whatever happens next. Hippies come out to see the commotion, and straight places turn gay for the night, as the village is overwhelmed with queers. And it's still so hot out, of course. The angry mood still lingers in the air. Mattachine members hand out copies of their pamphlet, What to Do If You Are Arrested. People fill Christopher Street, pack Christopher Park and Sheridan Square, and wrap around 7th Avenue and 10th Street. Some people are gathered to protest, others to watch. Some villagers and tourists stop just to see what's going on, and they stay to support the cause. One woman and her husband stop a police officer, and she shouts, Don't you know that these people have no place to go and need places like that bar? People stand up on stoops and benches to shout quick speeches and one-liners. I just want you all to know that sometimes being homosexual is a big pain in the ass. Lots of gay people quickly return from Fire Island to see what happened and find the crowd is a lot rowdier than they expected, like they're looking for a carnival rather than a protest. Jack Nichols and Lige Clark are among those returning, excited to join the crowd. They meet up with friends, hold hands, and chant. 
The chanting gets louder and louder as the crowd gets angrier. The Stonewall owners step outside to coax the crowd into the bar. Come on in and see what a pig's done to us. We're honest businessmen here. We're American-born boys. We run a legitimate joint here. There ain't nothing being wrong done in this place. Stonewall management has hung a new sign saying members only, even though they let just about everyone inside. But as Ronnie DiBrienza writes in the East Village Other, fuck them too. Why? To save their asses? To keep the public eye off them and the corrupt pigs? Horseshit, baby. We want the world, and we want it now. The crowd has little interest in patronizing businesses tonight. Village stores and restaurants close up early. Let's go down the street and see what's happening, girls. Stop the bus! At Greenwich and Christopher, the cruising place often called The Corner, protesters stop the flow of traffic onto Christopher. Craig Rodwell tells everyone around him, don't let taxis or buses onto the street unless they're carrying gay people. As cars and buses gently try to force their way through, gays start to push back on them. The cars rock back and forth as they inch through the crowd. The advertisement card on the front of a bus is torn off. Someone blocks the windshield with it, and protesters beat the sides of the bus, chanting, Liberate Christopher Street! Cops persuade protesters to let the bus pass. As it drives away, the protesters create a human chain across the street. Okay, officers, we'll allow cars, one at a time. The chain breaks just long enough for one car to pass through, one by one occasionally. People jump on top of cabs and stomp around. They rip the red light off of a cop car, and then they rock the car and tip it over. Closer to the stone wall, cops dodge bottles being thrown across the park from Grove Street. One kid throws trash can lids like frisbees, neatly bouncing off the cops' helmets. Trash can fires light the streets. Doric Wilson stands on the corner, looking up as red sparks gently rain down on him. Up in the women's house of detention, where many black and Latina lesbians are held, they're setting scraps of toilet paper on fire and dropping them from the cell windows to show their support. Many of these women inside have been arrested in the bars. There are so many lesbians in the house of detention, some gay women call it the country club. As Craig Rodwell is stopping traffic, he spots Marsha P. Johnson climbing on top of a lamppost, dropping a bag full of something heavy, maybe bricks, onto a squad car's windshield. Cops run, grab the closest gay person they can, and jump into the car. They drive off with him, beating him in the back seat. Another patrol car speeds past Dick Leish. The fat cop looked for all the world like a slave owner surveying the plantation. As the patrol car passes Dick, a sack of wet garbage is thrown into the car and busts on the cop's face, soggy coffee grounds running down his frown. Fourth, fifth, sixth, and ninth precincts bring hundreds of cops to the village. But they can't control the girls. So at 2.15 a.m., a tactical patrol force joins in again. A hundred TPF officers swarm the corner at Greenwich and Christopher, and 50 more at Christopher and 7th Avenue South, the other side of the stone wall, bringing the party down to a tense standoff. The TPF officers are in blue helmets, carrying billy clubs and four-foot-tall plastic shields. The occasional beer can flies from the crowd to hit TPF officers. Out of the sudden, eerie calm, two cops turn, rush into the crowd, and grab someone at random and drag them to the paddy wagon. As the two cops hold the guy, four more officers beat him, punching him in the face and the stomach, and they hit his genitals with nightsticks. Save our sister! Dozens of people rush the cops and take their sister back to the crowd. Everyone takes the beating, refusing to give him back to the officers. More TPF officers march slowly in wedges again, down Greenwich, pushing crowds out on across streets.
people run off Greenwich onto 6th, across Waverly, and back to Christopher, sneaking up behind the TPF on Greenwich again. The officers turn around to the crowd and march toward them. At each cross street, TPF officers break off the ends of their chain and chase queers down side streets. As Greenwich Avenue clears, the TPF moves down Christopher toward the stone wall. Several young queer folks coming up the street meet the TPF head on. The officers stand shoulder to shoulder, marching slowly, hiding behind their giant plastic shields. They clear Christopher down to Waverly, stopping right before Christopher Park, outside the bar. A small kickline of queers sing their little We Are the Village Girls song, slightly updated. We are the Stonewall Girls, we wear our hair in curls, we don't wear dungarees to show our Nelly knees. The officers marching toward these little fairies must be terrified. They're hiding behind their shields and helmets, carrying guns and clubs. Everyone watching wonders how long this kick line will go. How close will the officers get? Just a few feet from the shields, the girls break up and run. Like last night, the queens scatter and simply run across Waverly, up Gay Street, and back out onto Christopher behind the TPF. They dance and taunt the officers again. The most striking feature of the rioting was that it was led and featured as participants, queens, not homosexuals. Homosexuals have been sitting back and taking whatever the establishment handed out. The queens were having none of that. The butch numbers who were around the area and who participated on the sidelines in the action remained for the most part in the background. It was the queens who scored the points and proved that they were not going to tolerate any more harassment or abuse. Those usually put down as sissies or swishes showed the most courage and sense during the action. Their bravery and daring saved many people from being hurt, and their sense of humor in camp helped keep the crowds from getting nasty or too violent. For centuries, homosexuals were quietly walking down side streets, discreetly whispering in the parks, nervously drinking in illegal bars. Finally, tonight, queers own the streets. They stop traffic on the main streets and take the offensive. If the police want to force gays into a ghetto, the gays demand to run it. As two cops chase a group of a hundred or so down Waverly, one protester realizes they outnumber the cops, and they turn to shout, Let's catch them, rip their clothes off, and screw them on the spot! The crowd all turns, sees the two cops, and the officers turn around too and run from the girls for blocks. Catch them! Fuck them! Police successfully block off Christopher Park and surround the stone wall. All of Christopher, from Waverly to 7th, and all of Grove on the opposite side of the park, are blocked off. TPF swarms the streets, beating people at random. Protesters, and even some pedestrians just passing through, are slugged in the head by cops for no reason. Attempting to clear the crowds, the pigs set off tear gas in front of the stone wall. But just as before... The angry queers are not discouraged. They've discovered a power they didn't know they had, and they refuse to give it up. This battle, on the second night, is far uglier than last night's. Dick Leish sees the woman who yelled at the police with her husband earlier, now sticking together with a large group of queers taunting the TPF. Over two hours, the queens run the streets with chaos and glee. Slowly, the crowds dissipate into the night. Then, as the bars close at three, more people come outside, walking the village streets, seeing the helmeted officers roaming their territory again. A brief resurgence of anger fills the village again as protesters attempt to take control of a village subway station. But cops chase everyone out. Around 3.30 in the morning, the village cools and empties out. The TPF still watches the streets till sunrise. Dick Leish discovers the docks are packed with guys hanging out and hooking up. The cops are all busy watching the village. 
A few hours later, Sunday, June 29th, Henry Gerber's 77th birthday, the village is quiet while the sun rises. The New York Daily News reports, Three cops hurt as bar raid riles crowd. Those poor cops. The Daily News hits the stands with a photo from the first night of the rebellion, showing Jackie Hormona and other street kids face-to-face with cops outside the bar. Above the caption, Crowd attempts to impede police arrests outside the Stonewall Inn, Christopher Street. Meanwhile, as the village wakes up, members of a group called the Homophile Youth Movement gather in Christopher Park, outside the Stonewall, to hand out flyers to passersby, titled, Get the Mafia and the Cops Out of Gay Bars. Craig Rodwell writes in his bookshop's newsletter, Hymnal. The nights of Friday, June 27, 1969, and Saturday, June 28, 1969, will go down in history as the first time that thousands of homosexual men and women went out into the streets to protest the intolerable situation which has existed in New York City for many years. Namely, the mafia, or syndicate, control of this city's gay bars in collusion with certain elements in the police department of the city of New York. The purported reason for the raid was the Stonewall's lack of a liquor license. Who's kidding whom? Rodwell's flyer suggests legitimate business people open gay bars with decent prices and healthy social settings, and that gays should write to Mayor Lindsay to demand a thorough investigation, and that gays should also boycott places like the Stonewall. Activists in every gay organization can sense that nothing will be the same after this. Everyone is asking, what do we do now? What does the movement do now? First, we make sure everyone knows about what happened here. Volunteers for the Mattachine print and pass out copies of Dick Leish's coverage of the uprising, titled, The Hairpin Drop Heard Around the World. Some volunteers show up every night following the rebellion, mimeographing the story and passing it around Greenwich, all down Christopher. The neighborhood is buzzing day and night. Mayor Lindsay's staff and NYPD officers come to the New York Mattachine offices and beg them to please make everyone calm down. The Mattachinos hang a new sign in the east window of the stone wall. We homosexuals plead with our people to please help maintain peaceful and quiet conduct on the streets of the village. Mattachine. Some villagers are, again, disappointed in the stuffy old Mattachine. Back in the offices, the Mattachinos argue. Oh, we should be nice. Gay people are known as being nice, sweet people. No, this has all got to change. It's time to get radical. The civil rights movement didn't get where they are by being nice and quiet. And the anti-war movement didn't get where it is. We have to be militant, and we have to confront the authorities. Okay, okay, let's form an action committee. Flyers are printed up, titled, in all caps, GAY POWER. A midtown meeting at Freedom House is announced for July 9th under this call to action. Gay people are reaching the end of their patience. At the bottom of the calls for gay power and homosexual equality is a realization that we can influence our existence if we can only come together. Martha Shelley wakes up, feverish from a lack of sleep. She picks up the New York Times. Four policemen hurt in a village raid. Melee near Sheridan Square follows action at bar. Hundreds of young men went on a rampage in Greenwich Village shortly after 3 a.m. yesterday after a force of plainclothes men raided a bar that the police said was well known for its homosexual clientele. Thirteen persons What's were going on? Oh, just a riot. We have them here all the time. Let's go. Joan, it's Martha. We have to do something. DOB has to do something. We have to have a protest march. I can make a speech or something. Yes, stand up in public and get shot at. But I'd rather die than be called a coward. I have to do it. Maybe you should take this idea to the Mattachine Society. If they agree to it, we'll jointly sponsor it. 
Even though the press barely covers what would be a huge story if any other minority had revolted like this, the activists are still thrilled to see small stories continue to pop up in the New York Times. Police again rout village youth. Outbreak by 400 follows near riot over raid. Heavy police reinforcement cleared the Sheridan Square area of Greenwich Village again yesterday morning when a large crowd of young men, angered by a police raid on an inn, frequented by homosexuals, swept through the area. Stones and bottles were thrown at the police lines, and the police twice broke ranks and charged into the crowds. Queers in leather packed the village on Sunday night. Can't get pride. Lucian Truscott writes for the Village Voice. Gone were the gay power chants of Saturday, but not the new and open brand of exhibitionism. Steps, burbs, and the park provided props for what amounted to the Sunday fag follies as returning stars from the previous night's performances stopped by to close the show for the weekend. Over the next few nights, the police are finally able to get the neighborhood quiet. Only because the weekend is over, and people who might make noise on a weeknight have already done plenty over the past two nights. What else is there to be said or done? The NYPD is also prepared now to handle any potential crowds early on. Many officers outnumber the few protesters on Sunday, although a small band of young queers do raid the 6th Precinct's headquarters on Sunday evening. They put Dayglow Blue and Fuchsia bumper stickers on police cars, paddy wagons, and some of the cops' personal cars. The stickers say, Equality for Homosexuals. Tonight, the police are begging gays to go inside their bars. And the TPF clears the streets more politely this time, without helmets and clubs. Allen Ginsberg crosses Christopher, holding up a peace sign to the indifferent TPF officers as he goes inside the stone wall for the first time. Lucian Truscott, the village voice reporter, goes in with him. The bar is booming with rock music. Apparently after the cops destroyed their jukebox, they had a sound system put in. Everyone is dancing through the revolution in this now legendary bar, which will soon be closed for decades. As he leaves the stone wall with the reporter, Allen Ginsberg says, they've lost that wounded look that fags all had 10 years ago. Watch out, the liberation is underway. following nights are even calmer, aside from some minor skirmishes with cops. Start something, faggot. Just start something. I'd like to break your ass wide open. What a Freudian comment, officer. Some cops drive around shouting insults at people. Another cop stands on Waverly and Christopher doing the same, but a femme queen sneaks up behind him and lights a firecracker between his legs. The cop jumps and screams and a fight breaks out. His badge is stolen by a group of queens. The badge will be found tomorrow by the police on a string of pickled pig's feet hanging from a tree in Washington Square Park. God, I wish there was a photo. Aside from that dazzling creation, overall, the streets on Monday and Tuesday are fairly calm. Late on Wednesday night, the Village Voice publishes their issue covering Howard Smith and Lucian Truscott's Stonewall accounts. Howard was the reporter inside the bar on the first night. Lucian was outside. The issue is distributed through the neighborhood, and Fred McDara's photographs on the front page of the Village Voice grab the villagers' attention once again. But the text does even more so. The articles are filled with disrespectful phrases like limp wrists, gay cheerleaders, and dancing faggots, most of which were used by Lucian Truscott. They mention only one lesbian both reporters referring to her as a dyke. After years of inconsiderate coverage by reporters, covered in great detail on this podcast, many gays are pissed to see their gay uprising reported on like this. 
They talk about going down to Christopher Street tonight and setting the village voice offices on fire. Radical left groups have spent the past two days curiously following the stories from the village. This isn't like the DNC. The gays put the police on the defensive. That never happens. On Wednesday, many more heteros come to the village. Feet from the village voice offices, just outside the stone wall, hundreds of black panthers, yippies, and street youths from all over the city gather as a pack of patrol cars forces its way into the crowd. The police are better prepared for tonight. Trash can fires are lit down Christopher again. The mood is far less camp and far more hostile, the New York Times reports. Dick Leish writes for Mattachine. The street people were no longer half serious, half camp. The cops had taken the offense and massive retaliation was their goal. Some seemed quite ready to depopulate Christopher Street the moment anyone would give them permission to unholster their guns. Failing that, some of them, particularly some of the TPF men, tried to achieve the same objective with their nightsticks. It's barely 10.30 p.m. The pigs are ready to get started. Cops grab and beat people at random. The crowd grows to about a thousand. People are thrown down, kicked, dragged down Christopher to waiting patrol cars on 7th Avenue. Several injuries are reported throughout the night. Shops are vandalized and broken into. Young people, many of them queens, were lying on the sidewalk, bleeding from the head, face, mouth, and even the eyes. Others were nursing bruised and often bleeding arms, legs, backs, and necks. Ronnie DiBrienza covers the riot in the East Village Other. I have never seen anything worse than an infuriated queen with a bottle or long nails. Believe me, get their ire up and you face the wrath of all the gods that ever lived. Revolution is being heard on Christopher Street. Only instead of guttural MC5 voices, we hear it coming from sopranos and altos. The exploiters had moved in. Blacks and students who wanted a revolution, any kind of revolution, swelled the crowd, but graciously let the queens take all the bruises and suffer all the arrests. After about an hour of brutality, the village calms down again. DiBrienza writes, Christopher Street shall be liberated. The fags have had it with oppression. The New York Times covers the story, too. Last night, a chanting crowd of about 500 persons were scattered by members of the Tactical Patrol Force and police of the Charles Street Station, who were the targets occasionally of bottles and beer cans. A few fires were set in trash baskets along Christopher Street. And the Village Voice. Sheridan Square this weekend looked like something from a William Burroughs novel, as the sudden specter of gay power erected its brazen head and spat out a fairy tale the likeness of which the area has never seen. The forces of faggotry, spurred by a Friday night raid on one of the city's largest, most popular, and longest-lived gay bars, the Stonewall Inn, rallied Saturday night in an unprecedented protest against the raid, and continued Sunday night to assert presence, possibility, and pride until the early hours of Monday morning. Howard Smith, the voice reporter who was trapped inside the stone wall with the cops, reflects on that night. By now the mind's eye has forgotten the character of the mob. The sound filtering in doesn't suggest dancing faggots anymore. It sounds like a powerful rage bent on vendetta. SDS activist Bill Katzenberg calls up Charles Pitts, the co-producer of The New Symposium, the 1968 radio show on WBAI. Pitts is openly gay and talks about it on the air. The SDS activist Katzenberg had already announced a new gay left organization forming before the Stonewall Uprising and a meeting for them on July 24th. It was originally advertised as a group of young, radical homosexuals will meet this week to develop a critique of heterosexual supremacy, both in society and within this movement. Now that Charles Pitts and WBAI are launching the new Symposium 2 in the wake of the uprising, Katzenberg and Pitts team up to advertise the new group 
with new flyers. Do you think homosexuals are revolting? You bet your sweet ass we are. We're gonna make a place for ourselves in the revolutionary movement. We challenge the myths that are screwing up the society. The flyer tells all people interested to meet on July 24th at Alternative U, a counterculture meeting space where the movement will take a new turn. Hey, Matashinos! Yes, these are the final six episodes of Queer Serial, but don't worry, my Patreon will continue on after the show. I've got a slate of interviews lined up, many already recorded, and coming to you after the season is over. In the meantime, pop onto my Patreon for deeper dives into the research behind every episode. Recently, we looked at the Mattachine's phone call logs, which a lot of you loved. We looked at the Sir Pocket Lawyer book, mentioned in the show a few times. We've gone through Canadian homophile magazines, 1960s dirty gay coloring books, and the various erotic lesbian Belitis illustrations. Coming up, we'll look through Daughters of Belitis convention pamphlets and handwritten letters, letters and photos from the raid on California Hall, and some gay cruising guides. Check all that out, plus the bonus episodes and more at patreon.com slash queer serial. Just click the link in the episode notes. A few days after the Stonewall Rebellion, July 1st, 1969, Frank Kameny is skimming through the New York Times when he spots an old friend's name, Clifford Norton. Six years ago, Norton, a NASA employee, was arrested for cruising in Lafayette Square. He was fired, he called Kameny, and Frank referred him to the NCACLU. His firing was upheld, his appeal happened to go to some very liberal judges, and now, six years later... The New York Times announces the judge's statement. We conclude that he was unlawfully discharged. Frank and Clifford are shocked. One of the judges writes, We do not doubt that NASA blushes when one of its own is caught in flagrante delicto, but that's not enough to fire someone. The judge says this is all a smokescreen hiding personal antipathies and moral judgments. Clifford writes to Frank, So, for whom are you working now? Can they use me? On July 4th, eight homophile organizations travel to Philadelphia for the fifth annual reminder picket at Independence Hall. The dress code is just slightly relaxed. Guys can have long hair and beards now, but no blue jeans, and no pantsuits for women. Beads are considered by Giddings and Rodwell on a person-by-person -person basis. Some of the activists still don't want to push it too hard. After Craig Rodwell ran an ad for the picket in the Village Voice, men called the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop saying they were going to run the bus off the road. But they arrive safely at Independence Hall as Apollo 7 astronaut Walter Cunningham finishes a speech for a huge audience, explaining that he's worried about the students who are protesting their country and their military. Craig Rodwell steps off the bus he arranged from New York City and immediately notices a change in the usual attitude here. Everyone is talking about Stonewall. Jack and Lige see Lily Vincennes, their former Mattachine friend from D.C., they all talk about how different this picket feels. It's clear things are changing. Everyone seems so empowered. Jean Damon reports for the latter. The largest picket line ever turned out, with as many as 45 persons at one time. Another sign of change was that some of the rigidity in dress appeared to be relaxed, and some of the women had on slacks and some of the men blue jeans. Philadelphia's deputy mayor, his wife, and his son watch the picket next to the press. Frank Kameny is designated spokesman, the only activist allowed to speak to the press. He greets the reporters as the quiet picketers walk in a circle behind him. Barbara Giddings and Kay Lehusen have sweat through all five of these July 4th pickets. Craig Rodwell 
having just spent the past weekend screaming through the rebellion, is eager to make any kind of noise again. They all are. They're itching to. Just ahead of Craig, two young women have broken the single-file rule, walking beside each other. They're holding hands. Frank runs over to them, striking his arm down to separate their hands. None of that! None of that! Craig breaks from the line. He runs up to his friends from New York in the picket line and asks them to hold hands, too. About ten pairs couple up while Bill Weaver scribbles a new slogan over his sign. Smash sexual fascism. The press gets very excited. Frank is being interviewed by a journalist, and Craig bursts into the conversation. He says, Did you hear about what's going on in New York and the riots last week? We're tired of not being able to hold hands in public, and the leadership of our demonstration has to change. Craig, this demonstration isn't about any one individual person. This is about picketing against job discrimination. You are not making us appear presentable for employment. We don't want to be employed by this government anyway. We aren't going to change who we are. Homosexuality is a viable way of life. We are just as valuable as heterosexuals, just as we are. This isn't the place to make a scene. You can take that yelling back to Greenwich Village. Put this in your story. The old guard leaders, like this anti-Tom here, he no longer represents the new wave of the gay movement. There's not much Frank can do in front of this reporter, but watch the movement progress right in front of him. Back on the bus, Craig and the others realize they've attended the final annual reminder, at least in this rigid form. Something new will need to replace the annual reminder and also celebrate the uprising at Stonewall. Frank writes to Craig, apologizing for their disagreement, but adding, Love-ins, homosexual and or heterosexual both, have their place. So do picketing demonstrations. Neither is likely to be effective, and both are more likely to be ineffective if they are mixed. Meanwhile, on the West Coast, Dick Michaels at the Los Angeles Advocate like most homophile publications, covers the disagreement, saying, What the hell ever happened to the concept of freedom and equality that we espouse? What difference does it make whether the straights push us around directly or do it through other uptight homosexuals? This is what the concept of image eventually leads to. The image becomes more important than the goal. Anyone remember the very first Mattachine Schism in Season 1? Same fight. Kameny won't hear the criticism. The only person that can get him to listen, Barbara Giddings, takes some notes to prepare to change his mind. She gets right to the point. She writes, Frank, stop being Martinet, acting like a general commanding the troops. Younger people are tired of being ordered around, told what to do and how to dress. She ends by asking why there was no sign at the picket saying gay is good. At the next MSW meeting, Frank updates the members on open gay cases against the federal government, he mentions Stonewall, and then they watch Lily Vincenzo's film of the 1968 annual reminder picket. There's a link in the episode notes if you want to watch it too. Ava Friend, writing for the MSW's newsletter, The Insider, reports, To hell with dying on your knees. It appears that the structured homophile groups have failed to motivate the homosexual community. Perhaps they have not wanted to deal with the homosexual masses. When it becomes clear that the doors are never going to open and that door knocking is only a pacifier for the masses, then it is time to knock the doors down. July 5th. The New York Mattachines Action Committee is taken up by Michael Brown, Bill Weaver, Earl Galvin, Marty Robinson, and Martha Shelley. Their new flyer announces, Homosexual Liberation Meeting. Many of us in the community have been heartened by the appearance of a new spirit this past two weeks. Now is the time to take a stand on our own behalf. No one is free until everyone is free. The next day, July 6th, 
A huge club in Manhattan called the Electric Circus opens its doors for a gay night. Management heard about the gay power thing and decides to use the moment to help their slow business. They might have been on to something there. They get in touch with Mattachine to promote the gay dance, and Mattachine releases another flyer. Oh boy, we don't think it's necessary for gay people to be quizzed at the door, packed into overcrowded, overheated, overpriced, mafia-controlled sewers. If you all come, and if the experiment works, it could be beautiful. Beautiful enough to do every week. We really hope that everyone will dance together and dig one another. All proceeds will go to the Mattachine to fund the replacement of the trees cut down by the homophobic vigilantes in Kew Gardens. The Electric Circus dance floor is opened, and Randy Wicker grabs the mic just after midnight. He's wearing his American flag shirt, similar to the one he lent to Abby Hoffman for his HUAC hearing. Looking at the crowd, Randy shouts, Get power! But Randy is critical of the image the riots are giving homosexuals. He begins his speech. Rocks through windows don't open doors. Before anyone can agree with or criticize Randy for this comment he'll later admit was wrong, an employee of the Electric Circus realizes this room is full of queers, and he leans over to ask a guest if he's with this crowd. The guy says yes, and the bar's employee immediately starts beating him up. Jack Nichols is shocked as they all watch the straight guy get dragged away screaming. Randy gives the gay guy a ride home, who tells Randy he was part of the rebellion at Stonewall. All I know is that I've been in this movement three days, and I've been beaten up three times. Every New Yorker should make this trip at least once before November 4th, just across the river, to Newark. If you want to see what's happened in New York since Mayor Lindsay took over, you have to see what hasn't happened. Make your choice on merit only. Support John Lindsay for mayor. Three days later, July 9th, Mattachine's Action Committee meets at Freedom House. Nearly 20 years ago, the Mattachine met discreetly in living rooms, by invitation only, with arrival times scattered in order to keep neighbors from being suspicious. Their organization was discreetly named after medieval performers who confronted their powerful government from behind masks. The women named theirs after a fictional bisexual woman in an 1890s French poetry book. The activists used fake names and covered the telephones to be sure no one was listening in to their furtive conversations. Now... We're on the brink of something here. Organizations are forming and we're hearing gay liberation. We should have a march. Okay, all those in favor of a march... Every hand goes up. I see. Okay. Those who intend to organize a march, meet in the back for a planning session. The march committee pops open a few beers. Martha Shelley leads the meeting. Our committee should have a name, right? Any ideas? We're marching. It's a strong front like the Viet Cong, citizens fighting against the government. Someone says, we're like a gay version of the National Liberation Front of North Vietnam. Martha slams her fists on the table. That's it! That's it! We're the Gay Liberation Front! Oh, my hand's bleeding. What's going on here? What is this, Gay Liberation Front? Oh, no, don't worry, Dick. We're not starting a competing organization. We're just a march committee. An ad is placed in the Village Voice announcing a July 27th demonstration on the one-month anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion. There will be a rally with speeches in Washington Square Park and a march to the Stonewall, all co-sponsored by Belitis and Mattachine. Everyone should wear a lavender armband. Support gay power! In the meantime, the committee joins a picket outside the Women's House of Detention in support of Black Panthers imprisoned inside. The young Mattachine members want to show that gay people are ready to join more causes. We support you, and hopefully you support us. 
After chanting and singing as they marched around the building, they led a parade from the women's house to the stone wall. Shortly after that, they hold a meeting before the Stonewall Rebellion's one-month anniversary demonstration. They have a big event to plan. 200 people meet in a big room with a low ceiling. Dick Leish walks in late, wearing a brown suit. Police brutality and heterosexual indifference must be protested, but at the same time, the gay world must retain the favor of the establishment, especially those who make and changes the laws. Homosexual acceptance will come slowly by education the straight community with grace and good humor. We don't want acceptance, goddammit. We want respect. Demand it. We're through hiding in dark bars behind mafia doormen. We're going to go where the straights go and do anything with each other that they do. And if they don't like it, well, fuck them. Well, now, I think that what we ought to have is a gay vigil in the park. Carry candles, perhaps? A peaceful vigil. I think it should be firm, but just as amicable and sweet as... Sweet? Bullshit. That's the role society has been forcing these queens to play. And they just sit and accept it? We have got to radicalize, man. Be proud of what you are, man. And if it takes riots or even guns to show them what we are, well, then that's the only language that the pigs understand. Now, don't. If Madison wants to act straight, they're going to act straight into irrelevancy. All the oppressed have got to unite. The system keeps us all weak by keeping us separate. Order! Order! By the time the July 24th meeting rolls around, Martha Shelley and Marty Robinson are clearly in charge of this gay liberation front, though the organization has no official leaders or membership, Anyone can show up and chip in. They host their GLF meetings at Alternate U, a free school of counterculture educators and leftist political organizing. It hosts many groups like the Rat Newspaper, the National Committee to Combat Fascism, and Burning City Women's Theater. It's the perfect space for a new progressive gay organization to work for their own cause and also for racial civil rights, feminism, economic justice, and an end to war. The people of Alternate U believe that your body is your own, not the government's opportunity to value it for battle. It's yours to smoke pot if you want to, have sex if you want to, get pregnant if you want to, do sex work if you want to, do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting anybody. As the growing gay liberation front moves into the counterculture space to begin their work, Martha sees all the new possibilities ahead of them. In the Mattachine, They can't get involved in the anti-war movement or take up other causes. But the Gay Liberation Front sees the draft and racism and sexism and homophobia all as pieces of one larger problem. At the one-month anniversary Gay Power Vigil on July 27, 1969, Martha and Marty are the speakers for the Gay Liberation Front. Barbara Giddings looks around to see... Not 50 picketers in suits and dresses, but 500 people gathering joyfully in their everyday clothes. It's 2 p.m. in Washington Square Park. A lavender banner displays two female symbols linked and two male symbols linked. Martha stands on the edge of a fountain and shouts, The time has come for us to walk in the sunshine. We don't have to ask permission to do it. We are here. Brothers and sisters, welcome to the city's first gay power vigil. We're tired of being harassed and persecuted. If a straight couple can hold hands in Washington Square, why can't we? People cheer and wave from apartment windows above. We will no longer be victimized by straight people who are guilt-ridden about sex. We don't need to be told we're sick. Man, if I'm sick, I know where it hurts and I go to a doctor. If I'm happily making love, I don't want a doctor to come to me and say, you're sick. We're tired of flashlights and peeping Tom vigilantes, tired of marriage laws that punish you for lifting your head off the pillow. Why do you think they ran around at one in the morning with flashlights to chase people out of the park? To protect their children or to get a free peep show? Marty Robinson says, gay power is here. 
Gay power is no laugh. There are a million homosexuals in New York City. If we wanted to, we could boycott Bloomingdale's, and that store would be closed in two weeks. Join with the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Society to fight for equality. We will not permit another reign of terror. Keep your ears open. There are going to be more meetings. This ain't the end of us. This is just the beginning. Go home peacefully today, but keep in mind that this is just the beginning. The crowd marches to the Stonewall, stopping traffic on 6th Avenue, clapping and chanting, Gay Power. The Village Voice reports, Gay Power has surfaced. On mild protests to be short, but apparently only the beginning. A few days later, the Mattachine Action Committee gathers again to make official the lie that Martha Shelley told Dick Leish. Many Mattachine members are leaving to run their own organization, the Gay Liberation Front. Like many queer organizations, choosing their name will be one of the only unanimous decisions made. They meet back at Alternate U to discuss whether the organization will aim to deal with gay issues exclusively or work with other militant minority groups. Half the room walks out in disagreement. The Gay Liberation Front settles on a decision and announces their organization's goal in New York's underground newspaper, Wrapped. We are a revolutionary homosexual group of men and women formed with the realization that complete sexual liberation for all people cannot come about unless existing social institutions are abolished. Babylon has forced us to commit ourselves to one thing, revolution. We've come to realize that all our frustrations and feelings of oppression are real. The society has fucked with us, within our families, on our jobs, in our education, in the streets, in our bedrooms. In short, it is shit all over us. We, like everyone else, are treated as commodities. We're told what to feel, what to think. We identify ourselves with all the oppressed. The Vietnamese struggle, the third world, the blacks, the workers, all those oppressed by this rotten, dirty, vile, fucked up capitalist conspiracy. The closet is a system of taboos and institutionalized repressions against sexual expression. Marriage is one of the most insidious and basic sustainers of the system because by taking part in it, a male worker is given the illusion of participating in the power of the ruling class through economic control of his children and through the relation he has with his wife as sexual object and household slave. Meanwhile, Frank Kameny writes again to the Department of Defense. While I do not necessarily approve of violence, public disorder, and rioting, if all other reasonable measures having failed, that turns out to be what it does take, then by your own effective invitation, that is what you will get. The Gay Liberation Front announces discussion groups, demonstrations, dances, a newspaper, a coffee house, and a commune. They begin absorbing gay activists from other groups all over the city. Catching herself in the whirlwind of work, Martha realizes that just a few months ago, when she was president of the New York Daughters of Belitis chapter, people would send money to her and hope that she would go out and fight while they hid in the closet. But now, after Stonewall and all the public demonstrations following, it seems like everyone is suddenly called to action and no longer afraid. So forget the pseudonyms. Fuck the court jester and the woman from the poetry book. 
and the political infighting of the homophile organizations, and the discreet hotel room meetings, and the run-down bars, and the dark alleys, and the secret house parties, and all the various masks held up by the many gay organizations who think they alone hold the keys to queer liberation. In the series finale, the end of the homophile era. Thank you so much for listening, and I apologize for my sore throat in this episode. It's been quite a long season. I even sang in two episodes now, by the way. And listening back, I definitely sound like I'm giving you Lisa Kudrow's sexy, sick voice in this episode. Sorry. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. I'll have a special series finale episode coming very soon. Not next week, but soon. We'll let folks catch up. In the meantime, I'll be working on a new project that could be considered somewhat of a sequel to this podcast. I'll tell you a lot more about this very cool project in the series finale episode, so stay tuned. I've already dropped a hint about it in a recent episode, and I'm sure some of you nerds picked it up. Speaking of which, uh, if you're into queer history, check out my Patreon for tons of bonus stuff from all three seasons of Queer Serial, including lots of bonus episodes and a spin-off miniseries, and research dives and interviews and all sorts of somewhat naughty vintage queer content. That's all at patreon.com slash queer serial. There's a link in the episode notes. And if you're liking this show, I would so love for you to leave a little review or just five stars on Apple Podcasts so that more folks can find the show when they're looking for queer history. It really does give a huge boost to the show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. You could also follow the show at Queer Serial on Instagram to see the real events and people from every episode. I post tons of cool stuff. Check it out. And if you don't have an account, you're a desktop kind of person, Instagram.com slash Queer Serial. You can still see it all. And if you'd like to learn more about the Stonewall Rebellion, I recommend the PBS documentary Stonewall Uprising and David Carter's 2004 book Stonewall. Although, worth mentioning again, he does neglect to include Sylvia Rivera in his research. The 1984 documentary Before Stonewall and its sequel After Stonewall are also fabulous. I absolutely do not recommend any of the movies. Also check out Eric Marcus's podcast, Making Gay History. They did a whole season in 2019 for Stonewall's 50th anniversary, and they cut together interviews from people who were there, and they tell the whole story of the riot. More resources for this podcast can be found on my website at QueerSerial.com. The fabulous clips of people chanting gay power come from Lily Vincenza's other documentary from 1970, Gay and Proud, from the Library of Congress's Motion Picture Broadcasting and Recorded Sound Division. But put a pin in that, we'll talk about it very soon. Thank you so much to everyone who has donated to support production of the podcast and my upcoming projects. If you want to support the show, you can join my Patreon at patreon.com slash queerserial for lots of bonus content in return, or head over to queerserial.com slash donate. Thank you. Also, thanks to the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Teachers, feel free to DM me on any social media and email me at QueerSerial.com if you'd like transcripts of the episodes. Voice Actors The Daily News Reporter was played by Adrian Barker. The New York Times Reporter was played by my Grant Steve Camp. Ain't he cute? Angered by police raid on an inn, frequented by homosexuals. (laughs) (laughs) Homosexuals. That's funny. (laughs) Woman screaming at cops, of course, was my granny, Faye Camp. Can you get a little angrier? Yeah. Don't you know that these people have no place to go and need places like that bar? The Skull and voice reporter Howard Smith by John Roth. Bartender and Bill Katzenberg by Evan Camp. Dick Leish by Evan Kepnick. She was an evil old witch. She bit me out of jail once, but she was an evil old witch. Madeline Cervantes by Maggie Smith. Marty Robinson by Andrew Casey. Martha Shelley by Eliana Stone. Joan Kent by Marissa Barbara Clayton. Lucian Truscott by Garrett Williams. Cop by Mike Lysak. Charles Pitts by Dan Unser. Jean Damon by Amanda Victorian. Lily Vincennes by Jen Freitag. 
Bill Weaver was played by Paul DeCicio, Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller, Bob Kohler by Owen Keenan, James Forrett by Lucian Grateri, and Frank Kameny by Albert Williams. Love ins. It's hard to not do that. Fabulous village girls and street queens were played by Jack Murphy, Lucian Grateri, Connor Good, Courtney Tesh, Protest the Police, Julian Hall, Jacob Trish Wallace, and Paula Harrington. Being homosexual is a big pain in the ass. The fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Thiel. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music is by Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. Can you believe it? We're almost there. I'm Devlin Camp. Bye. I used to do anything to get drugs. I stole money. I went with guys. I even had to have an abortion. Then I heard about Phoenix House. I joined, and I've been off drugs more than a year now. And I'm going back to school. Mayor Lindsay started the first comprehensive city program to fight drug addiction because three years ago there was no place for a kid like this to go, except to jail. You're a sad, pathetic man. You're a homosexual. And you You don't don't want to be. be.